Amen. All right. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, that's where we're going to be. Uh, if you've been with us, tracking with us, we're going through the Gospel of Luke. As a community, we're learning about Jesus. And we've seen in the opening chapters of Luke that the maker of man became man. Jesus, the creator of all, took on human nature and came in what theologians call the incarnation. And he did this for us and for our salvation. And as Luke is opening kind of the, the setting of Jesus' life and his ministry, he's been demonstrating uh, what that salvation is like. How can we understand what it means? We've seen that Jesus is the last Adam and that he's leaving a legacy of life, a new family marked by life. And when we receive him, we're adopted into that new family. We've seen that Jesus is the anointed king, that he's come to establish God's kingdom here on the earth. And when we receive and follow Jesus, we get to experience that kingdom. We're literally delivered into that kingdom. We've seen that Jesus' salvation is good news for the poor, which is great news for all of us because we're all suffering from the many faces of poverty in our own lives. And Jesus has come for us. We've seen that Jesus is setting captives free, that he's bringing freedom for captives, for those bound under the oppression of sin, the dominion and power of sin. Jesus is busting us out. And today we're going to see the next theme in the way that we can understand Jesus' salvation and how it means for our life. So we're going to start in Luke 4, 14 and continue in our study. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, as we've been working through this passage of scripture, we've been taking it line by line, studying it in depth. And today, our, our phrase, our little clause in here, is that Jesus came to bring recovering of sight to the blind. Now, of all the descriptions of Jesus' ministry, his fingerprints, as we're studying them, this is probably the most well-known. Whether you grew up in church or outside of the church, consider yourself well-versed in the Bible, or it's kind of all new to you, this phrase probably strikes a familiar tone. Sight to the blind. I was blind, but now I see, right? It's one of the key lines in the famous song, Amazing Grace. Uh, Amazing Grace is one of the most well-known, well-recorded, well-sung songs in all of history. Over the last 250 years, uh, it's just been recorded and sung in each generation Almost uh, since the 1950s or so, it's been in the Billboard top charts one generation after another. Uh, it was sung at Woodstock, not a likely place for a Christian gospel hymn to be sung. I think we have a picture 
of Woodstock up there that we can show you, right? In the midst of kind of the, the revelry of Woodstock, right? There was singing Amazing Grace. Johnny Cash, the famous singer, it was a song that was near and dear to his heart. That he sang it and helped his family get through a really dark time when they lost a sibling of his. And so he would, in his adult years, would travel around for his concerts. He would visit prisons. And he would sing Amazing Grace to the prisoners. And he said, though everyone was in chains, in the three minutes that I was singing Amazing Grace, we were all free there together. More recently, Barack Obama uh, led out in singing Amazing Grace after the Charleston church shootings, right? And if you watch America's Got Talent or The Voice or any of those shows, you know that each season someone is going to sing these song, this song, right? This song about the grace of God. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Now, as I studied this song, uh, one thing that I found interesting was that though it's so popular, though it's so well-known, that there were even performers who this was a key song in kind of their musical career who didn't know the origin or the story or the meaning behind the words of this song. And you might be there today. I found the story behind the song as moving and as powerful as the actual lyrics. It was penned by a gentleman named John Newton. Newton was a British guy born in the 1700s in Britain, 1735 to be precise. He was born into a really difficult situation. Uh, his mom died when he was six, and his dad was a hard man. His dad was a, a, what you might call a cruel father. Newton in his adult life said, I was convinced that my dad loved me, but it was like he was bent on not showing it or saying it to me. And that his father's sternness left him to quote Newton that he was in a state of fear and bondage as a child. That, he was, that his father's sternness broke and overawed Newton's spirit. Just imagine as a child what a difficult life that would be. At age 11, he's trained and he's sent on into his career to be a sailor and to sail on the Atlantic Ocean, kind of navigating those waters as a part of Britain's economy. Again, a very rough life, hardened people, and Newton felt right at home. You see, he would say that his life was not just marked by difficult circumstances, by the cruelness of his father, but that he was cruel himself, that he was a reprobate, that he was a defiler, that he was uh, just a dirty man. And that's what he was dead set on. He was so hard to be with that he got kicked off one of the ships that he worked for and left in Africa. He was a slave for two years in Africa uh, because his captain on his ship was so tired of dealing with him. And he described that slavery as being so difficult that African slaves would try and sneak John Newton food because John Newton's rations were so small. That's how harsh his master's family was to him. Well, after two years, Newton manages to escape, gets on a boat back to Britain. And as he's sailing on this boat, just this difficult life, he's 21 at this point, 10 years on the sea, the ship that he's on runs into a huge storm on the Atlantic Ocean. It's so large and so significant that they're certain they're going to lose their lives. They're certain they're going, their ship is going to be broken, they're going to lose their lives at sea. 
And in these circumstances, Newton said he found this new kind of thing arising inside of him, this desire to pray, right? Probably not the first sailor when faced with certain death calling out to God. He said prayer was not a part of his life, but in that moment, in that situation, he just found the need to call out to God, asking God to save them. Well, they made it through the storm, and much to Newton's surprise, that moment of kind of a religious prayer uh, didn't just stop there, but he found this newfound longing, something being birthed inside of him to pray and to read the Bible and to understand who God was. So on the ship sailing back to Britain, this hardened man, this wretch as he would describe himself, begins to read the Bible and begins to pray and begins to have a spiritual awakening. He begins to know Jesus and Jesus' love and the good news of the gospel. And he's blown away. He said it begins to change his life, change the course of his life, change who he was. He said it would take him almost six or seven years to convert to Christianity, but God began a genuine work of grace in his life in that season coming back from slavery. So he gets back to Britain, and he continues kind of on the sea trade, right? And he's growing in his faith, and yet at the same time, he's doing things that later on in life he would look back on and say, I cannot believe I was involved in those vile and evil things. One of those was the slave trade, that he worked uh, buying, capturing, selling slaves, bringing to Britain and the different places within the British Empire. And that's going to be a key part of his story. We're going to come back around to that in a moment. And yet while he's doing these wicked things, he's also growing in his faith and growing in understanding what it means to know Jesus and walk with him. So much so that he says, you know, I need to leave this old life behind. He takes on a new career and he begins to work in Britain and he begins to study the Bible. He begins to pray more uh, and he begins to be mentored by other godly Christians and they pour into him and he grows and he grows in his faith and he decides that he uh, needs to spend the rest of his life telling people about the grace of God that saved a wretch like him. So he decides to go into the ministry and he becomes a minister in the Church of England where he serves for the next 50 years. And throughout his life, the common theme was this depth of gratitude and awe at the grace and the salvation of Jesus that had found him and had saved him and had made him new. When he was 81... Uh, a friend said, hey, don't you think it's time that you stop preaching? Don't you think it's time to hang it up? And he said, what? How could I hang up proclaiming the grace of Jesus that came for me, this vile African slave, and God has set me free? Right? He was like, I'm going to carry this message to my grave. When he was in his late 30s, this kind of sense of awe and joy and thankfulness just man, marked him, and he was preparing for a January 1st New Year's Day sermon. And he wanted just to testify again to the goodness of the gospel. And so he began to try and articulate his own story, right? And the words to the song Amazing Grace were his testimony that day as a part of his sermon. He articulated, man, this is what the gospel has done in my life. It went on to be put to song, and that song is now spread through generations around the world, as I told you. 
One of the other things that happened around that time is he recorded his testimony and song. He also recorded his experience in the slave trade and what the ways that the gospel had opened his eyes to see the evil of what he was doing. And in a pre-Facebook, pre-YouTube, pre-Twitter, Instagram kind of generation, Newton's testimony went viral. It spread throughout Britain, spread into Parliament, and was a key part in seeing the slave trade abolished in his generation. The grace of the gospel, finding this vile man on the ocean in between Africa and Britain, and saving him, opening his eyes, giving him sight, as Newton would say, letting him see, and then God using his testimony the story of the grace of God in his life to shape the world for the better as we know it. I just want to stop there for a moment and say, uh, God has given you a testimony. If you know Jesus, you have a story that matters, a testimony of the grace of God. And for Newton, his platform was his church, and he shared that, and he wrote a letter about the slave trade. That was kind of his work to do. I wonder what your platform is. I don't think when he showed up to church on January the 1st that he thought, man, the words that I share today are going to be sung for the next 250 years, right? I wonder what would happen if you took time to articulate and to record your testimony and to share it in the sphere of influence that God's given you, what God might do with that. Who might he touch? What, what, what unknown good work might come of that? When we're doing baptisms on Easter, one thing we take time to do is to let people share their story of grace, their story of, I was blind, but now I see. And it's always so powerful. And I want to encourage you, if you're a Christian and you've not been baptized, you've never done that, this is a step in our faith, this is a step of obedience that Jesus calls us to, and it's a powerful proclamation of what the gospel has done in our lives. And I would encourage you, if you've not been baptized, man, don't delay. Let's take this opportunity. Let's celebrate the grace of God together. Well, it was that phrase, uh, I once was blind, but now I see that Newton had got from the scriptures, from the teachings of Jesus, the way of understanding his salvation. And when Jesus back, if we go back to our Luke text, Luke 4, as Jesus is sharing this, his hearers in the synagogue that day, when he shared that, it had definite meaning to them. You see, they were products of what we called the Old Testament. And throughout the Old Testament, there's this anthem of hope in the midst of despair that one day God is going to come. He's going to send a leader who's going to renew the world, who's going to redeem his people, who's going to set them free, who's going to open blind eyes. In fact, that was one of the prophecies about this new leader who was to come, that his reign, his leadership would be marked by blind eyes being opened. Now, in the Gospels, there are 27 recorded, no, I'm sorry, 37 recorded miracles of Jesus. There are 37 different miracles recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we know from the Apostle John that these weren't all the miracles that Jesus did. In fact, in John 21, the Apostle John writes, Now, there were also many other things that Jesus did. 
Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Right? So each of the writers of the gospel had to take from the, the vast life and ministry that Jesus had and to distill it, to compile it, to put it together in their biographies of him. And it's interesting, of the 37 miracles chosen right, to fill the gospels, five of them, by my count, more than any other type of miracle, was Jesus healing the blind, was the recovery of sight to the blind. It's like a signature miracle of Jesus, something that everywhere he's going, he's just opening blind eyes. It's a mark on his ministry. And I want to read one story to you because what we're going to see in John 9 is Jesus is opening literal, physical blind eyes and he still does that today. We had a family involved in our church for a long time. That that had been their experience, literally uh, uh, medically blind, right? Legally blind and God healing them that they could see, right? He still does that. But what you're going to see in this story is that there's multiple layers to this work, uh, this miraculous work of Jesus. That he's not only healing physical blindness, which is good news for us if we're blind, but he's healing this larger blindness that impacts all of us. So if you'll turn your Bibles to John 9, we're going to read, starting in verse 1, this story of Jesus living this passage out. So John 9, verse 1, as Jesus passed by, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, which means teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In their day, they felt like if you had a condition like blindness, it was the result of sin in your own life or the life of your parents, right? So they're asking, who, whose fault was this? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the work of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus says, hey, don't focus. It's not, that's not, you're, you're barking up the wrong tree. God is on the move and God is going to work in this situation. God is going to, uh, to, to, to move in this man's life. Verse 4, Jesus said, we must work the works of him, God, the Father, who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in, in the world, I am the light of the world. So we see that Jesus is the light of the world. In verse 6, having said these things, he spit on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So the blind man went and washed and he came back seeing. Blind eyes open, recovery of sight. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar, they were saying, wait, is not this the man that used to sit over there and beg? And someone said, it's him. But others said, no, it's just someone that looks like him. But the blind guy, now healed, right, keeps saying, no, 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 that's me. I'm the man. I was blind, but now I see. Verse 10. So these neighbors, they asked him, they said, well, how are your eyes open? How did this happen? And the man answered, the man called Jesus made mud and he anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received my sight. They said to him, well, where is that man? Where did he go? 
And the blind man that could now see said, I don't know. Verse 13, they brought, uh, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. The Pharisees are kind of the religious leaders of their day. And they bring this man to him. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. How did this happen? And the blind man who could now see said to them, He, being Jesus, put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This is not a man from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. So they're saying that Jesus is not from God, that this work is not, not authentic from God, because it was done on the Sabbath, a day where they thought work should not be done. But others said, Well, how can a man who is a sinner do such a sign? Like, how can you say this man is not from God? How would he have this power to heal? And so there was division among them. So again, they said to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And the blind man who can now see responds, Jesus is a prophet. Well, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight. They said, well, this surely can't be right. You're making this up. So they called his parents. And they said, hey, is this your son, the one that was born blind? Now does he see? And his parents answered, well, we know this is our son. We know that he was born blind. But he now sees? We don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Go ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Sounds like a strange response for parents to say. But what we find out is his parents were afraid. They said these things because they feared the Jews for the Jews had already agreed that anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, Jesus to be God's anointed king, that he was going to be put out of the synagogue. So his parents basically passed the buck to their son. Not a great parenting move, but they did it anyway. Uh, verse 20, his parents answered, we, uh, I'm sorry, skip that. Verse 24, for the second time they called the man who had been blind and they said to him, now give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. The, blind, the, the man, the, the former beggar, responds, Well, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, Well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And they just keep circling back around this. And the guy responds, I've already told you. And you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? And that got him real mad. And they reviled him, saying, You're his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. Then the man answered, what? This is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes? We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the foundation of the world has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you, born in utter sin, you would teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. Then Jesus heard that they had cast the man out, and he went and he found him. And he said to the man, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man responded, well, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And the man responded, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And then note this, verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see. 
and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. What's that in part saying? So this deal about sight to the blind was not just this one person's physical testimony. But Jesus is saying throughout our world, there are people who have this spiritual blindness. Here he's talking about the Pharisees, right? That they're the ones that they can't see the grace of God at work in front of them. They're just kind of lost in this darkness. And Jesus said, I've come that the blind may see and that those who think they see may become blind. And these Pharisees who claim to really be able to see, at the end of the story, you see there the blindness that they walk in is exposed. So you see that Jesus is not only healing physical blindness, but he's healing a spiritual blindness that impacts the Pharisees. But what we learn later in the scripture is that the blindness that impacts the whole world, that all of us suffer from this kind of blindness, that we miss who God is that we miss who we really are, that we miss the way of God, that we all, in a way, are like John Newton, that we're lost, needing to be found, that we're blind, needing to see. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 articulates it like this. In their case, speaking about the world, the God of this world, meaning the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, right? So unbelievers' minds are blinded and that it's God who's at work to help them see, to give them sight, to see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, for this is what we proclaim, not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants for your sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. So what we see Paul saying is the whole world is spiritually blind and Jesus has come to give the whole world sight. That in the gospel we receive sight, we receive the restoration of sight, spiritual sight. Man, that is such a rich theme. That is such good news for us today that we can know God, that we can know who we truly are, that we can see our our fellow man and woman for who they really are, and we can walk in God's purposes. And Jesus wants to remove our blindness and give us sight. So where does that leave us? How does that impact us today? Well, number one, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you've never had that experience that John Newton spoke about, that spiritual awakening, that converting to Christianity. You may have grown up in the church, right? You may have been in the church from the day you were six months old, or you may have been far from the church. It does not matter kind of your background. The question is, do you know Jesus? Have you received sight from him? Could that be part of your testimony? If you haven't, I'm going to give you the opportunity here in just a moment to receive him and to receive the gospel, to become a Jesus follower and to receive that spiritual awakening or that spiritual sight. If you are a Christian, 
God is continuing. This is not a one-time process, but as we grow and as we walk with him, it's an ongoing thing of gaining greater and greater and greater sight about who God is and the things of God. And this is such a powerful part of our testimony. Like I said before, I wonder if you took this phrase and not in pride, not look at me, I've arrived, I was blind, but now I see. That's not the spirit that Newton nor this beggar had, but this humble awe and gratitude. I I don't know how to describe it. You figure it out, but I was blind and now I see. If you were to share that with someone to articulate what God's done in your life, I just wonder what God might do. I want to invite us all to stand wherever we find ourselves. And we're going to go to God by taking communion. But I want to pray for us first. And I just want to invite you to go ahead and stand up. And if you would uh, bow your head. Our officiants are going to come to the four corners of the room to set up communion. But I just want to give a moment here. I felt impressed this morning to give a moment here for if there's anyone here who needs to receive Jesus today. For the first time, you need to say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to receive the gospel. I want to practice the way you're going to have an opportunity. So I just want to invite, for the sake of privacy, everyone to close their eyes and bow their head, just that this might be a private moment. Uh, No one's going to get called out here. But if that's you, I want to lead you in a simple prayer that's the beginning of a lifelong journey and the best decision that you'll ever make. So if you're here today and you like, man, I need to know Jesus. All the heads are bowed. All the eyes are closed. It's just you and me, right? I'd love for you just to raise your hand up just so I can know who I'm praying with. Just stick your hand up. It's awesome. I'm seeing hands. This is great. I'm going to just lead you in a simple prayer, and you can just repeat after me. Jesus, I need you. I am blind. I need your gospel to give me sight. Thank you, Lord, that you're making me new. I commit today to follow you. Amen. Amen and amen. That's the beginning of an incredible journey. Um, We'd love to help you in that. For everyone else, we're going to go to God by taking communion. And uh, we've got the efficiency at the four corners of the room. And I want us to respond with that gratitude that Newton had. When you go to take of the bread and take of the cup, you can return to your seat when you're ready. And just praise God and think through the ways that he's given you sight, that he's opened your eyes. I was thinking about that this week, and man, just fill me with joy and gratitude at Jesus and the goodness of who he is. So as the worship team leads us, I just want to invite you to receive communion. They'll play, and you can respond when you're ready.